the next space station astronaut and a mission to the Trojan asteroids. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. A crew of four is set to launch to the International Space Station at the end of the month, starting a six-month mission to the orbiting lab. The three NASA astronauts and one European Space Agency astronaut are flying on SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule, launching from Kennedy Space Center on a Falcon 9 rocket. One of those astronauts is Kayla Barron, and she tells us the first rocket launch she'll ever see in person will be the one she's sitting on top of. We'll speak with Barron about her rookie mission to space and what she expects to do when she gets to the ISS. Then, a NASA spacecraft is set to head to clusters of asteroids living around Jupiter. The asteroids, known as the Trojans, have never been visited by a spacecraft before and could hold the key to unlocking the secrets of the start of our solar system. NASA scientist Keith Knoll joins the show to talk about these asteroids and what answers they may hold. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? Yeah, here on WMFE, America's Space Station. The NASA and SpaceX Crew-3 mission is set to launch from Kennedy Space Center in the early morning hours of October 30th from right here on Florida's Space Coast. It'll be a six-month mission for the crew of four, who over the weekend visited KSC for some final preparations ahead of the flight. I spoke with one of those astronauts, Kayla Barron, last week ahead of her trip to Florida. When it launches, it will be her first mission to space. So, Kayla, the last time we talked, you weren't assigned a mission, um, and now you're heading to the International Space Station on Crew-3. Um, I'm wondering if you might be able to take us back to that moment that you found out you were getting to go to space. It was so exciting. I think for all of us, you know, our class, the Turtles, we we graduated from our initial training pipeline in January of 2020, so a little over two years after we started. Um, and I think, you know, looking forward, there's a lot a lot for our class to look forward to in our careers. We have the Artemis program. We're about to fly Artemis one um, pretty soon. And then also looking at the opportunity to maybe fly to the space station. For me, that's what originally interested me in wanting to apply, you know, understanding all of the parallels between serving on a submarine and serving in space and wanting to be a part of that incredible legacy. Um, So when I found out that I was going to get the chance to fly to the space station, I was so excited um, by that opportunity. And as what that was going to look like really came into focus, I only got more and more excited. I'm a really team oriented person. So it matters a lot to me who I'm doing things with, not a solo adventure. I've always really relied on the people around me to get through those challenging experiences. And I couldn't be more excited about Crew 3. You know, the chance to fly with Raja, one of my training classmates, uh, who I have a ton of experience with over the years, getting to know him and his family. Uh, we work really well together. Getting to know Matthias, who just has a really incredible perspective. He's a really innovative thinker. He always boils things down to their their subparts and has a really interesting solution no one's ever thought of. And then especially the chance to get to fly with Tom, who has He's one of the most experienced astronauts in our office. He's about to join a very short list of people who've flown aboard three different spacecraft. And so I'm just really looking forward that, to the opportunity to launch with those guys and then join the crew that's up there now, the chance to spend time with Mark Vandehei, who was a mentor to me during my training, and the chance to now go fly with him in space is incredible. So um, as, as that really came into focus and I, and I realized I was going to be on Crew 3 and then joining Mark, I just was so excited to be a part of that. 
Mm -hmm. It sounds like a, a great crew and you guys get along great. Um, it's my understanding the four of you are heading here to the Kennedy Space Center this weekend. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what's in store? What are some of the things you have to do, your final preparations when you get here? Yeah, so we, ha we have our last trip to Florida before we go later in the month and stay there until launch. Um, and what we have on Saturday is call, we call it CIT, the Crew Equipment Integrated Test. And that's what it's historically been called. I think SpaceX is going to rebrand it, calling it the Dragon Test Drive <laughs> here pretty soon because they think that's a cooler, less acronymy name. Um, but it's really our opportunity to see the capsule in its final state. The, the capsule is pretty much complete and we will be in our flight suits um, and in the capsule just verifying that all of the systems that we'll be interacting with are ready to go, running through some procedures, kind of doing a dress rehearsal for the things we'll be doing on launch day and on orbit. Um, so it's gonna be a really exciting day. We've gotten to see our capsule be built in California because we're flying a new capsule. So it's been in the clean room being assembled during our training. So every time we were there at SpaceX, we would go visit the clean room and see the capsule, you know, going from a shell with sort of nothing on it to slowly building up all of the complex environmental control systems, the propulsion system, the electrical system, all getting installed. Um, and then last time we were there, they were about to put on the last couple closeout panels. So she looks like a real spacecraft now, which is really exciting. Um, and I think that will, feeling will only feel more intense when we go down to Florida and see the capsule at the Cape where we're gonna be launching here in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. Have you had a chance to, to see a Falcon 9 fly? Were you at any of the other uh, crew missions? One, one sort of failing on my part, based on my, my sort of busy training flow since coming to NASA, is I have never been to a rocket launch in person of any kind. Seriously? So, <laughs> yes, I know. It's kind of shocking that I, some, I, I tried really hard a couple of times during training but it never worked out because we always had something else going on. So my very first rocket launch period will be, I will be in the capsule on the top of the rocket. So I've watched them from mission control. I've of course watched them on NASA TV like everybody else does. Um, but I think it's going to be a pretty eye-opening experience. That is, that's, that's great. That, that, well, I mean, no better launch than your own, right? <laughs> to be exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and finally, Kayla, I, I know you're going to have a lot to do while you're up there on your six-month mission. Um, but what are you going to do for fun up there? We're really looking forward to, I think, the incredible science we'll get to do. But I think in our free time, we all have projects for photography projects, things we want to do both on the station and then looking back down on the Earth. Um, and so I think trying to find ways to share that experience with all of our supporters on the ground is going to be really important. And so I think for fun, we'll be trying to figure out the best way to tell those, those stories. We'll have more on that mission as we get closer to launch. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast or visit wmfe.org slash space. Still to come, a mission launching this weekend heads to the Trojan asteroids. What answers could they hold about the early days of our solar system? Are we there yet? Is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. 
A NASA spacecraft is set to launch this Saturday, heading to a cluster of asteroids living around Jupiter. The asteroids, known as Trojans, have never been visited by a spacecraft before and could hold the key to unlocking the secrets of the start of our solar system. NASA scientist Keith Knoll joins the show to talk about these asteroids. Keith, thanks for joining us. Hi, Brandon. I'm glad to be here. So glad to have you too, Keith. Very exciting week leading up towards launch. Um, I'll start with a, a pretty easy question I think you can answer. What is Lucy? Uh, Lucy is a, uh, a NASA mission that we're getting ready to launch on October 16th. It's the first mission to a group of asteroids called the Jupiter Trojan Asteroids. And I can explain what those are because they're not on the placemats you had as a kid. <laughs> right. I, I know the asteroid <laughs> belt, but I don't know the Trojans. Uh, right. So tell us about the, these. Are, these are really interesting asteroids, aren't they? Yeah. So well, if you take that, you know, that placemat you had and you're looking down, you see the, you know, almost circular orbits of the planets. And then you see this belt of asteroids between Mars and Jupiter. But that's not all of the small bodies in the solar system. Small bodies is a term that we use instead of, or in addition to asteroids, uh, we won't go into the details of, you know, what the distinctions, if any, of those might be. But um, if you were to look at this top-down view and you had all the small body populations there, in addition to the main belt asteroids, you would see some that come close to the Earth, those we call near-Earth objects. And then you would see two clumps of asteroids that are leading and trailing uh, Jupiter. And if you uh, were to make a sort of a triangle with the sun and Jupiter, each at one vertex, then you would have one clump of these that are ahead of Jupiter at the, at the other apex there. And that's the uh, L4 or uh, the L4 Lagrange point Trojans. And the one that's trailing Jupiter, that's the L5. And the reason they're there is that there's a gravitational balancing act that's going on. So like anything in the solar system, the main gravitational influencer is the sun. So they're orbiting the sun. Uh, but things tend to wander out of their orbits. And Jupiter has a role in, in these locations. Jupiter's small addition to the sun's gravity tends to nudge them back into place instead of making them wander even further. And so that's why they remain stable there. Why are scientists so interested in these asteroids, other than the fact that we've never sent a probe there before? Well, that's always the perfect answer. But the because there are these stable regions, as I explained, they you could think of them as a collecting region. And in the last 30 years, we've learned a lot about the early solar system. So uh, the old view was the planets formed where they are, things stay pretty static. Uh, but what we've seen when we look at planets around other stars is that, wait a minute, the planets there, you know, you have things the size of Jupiter really close in. And that made people realize that uh, planets move around after they're formed. And in fact, the way they move around is they're, they're forming out of a disk of these small bodies, these small, these asteroids. And they interact gravitationally with it. And so it's a kind of friction, and it can make the big planets as they're growing move. And sometimes they move in closer to their star, sometimes they move further away, or it can be both. The other thing that we learned is that when we looked outside uh, of the orbit of Neptune, we found uh, many, many small bodies out there with a Kuiper belt. 
And when you look in detail at the Kuiper Belt, you see clear evidence that it was affected by the giant planets moving around. So the new picture we have is that at the end stages of giant planet formation, the, the growing giant planets start moving around. Whatever's left of this disk of material that they formed from is getting scattered everywhere because of the giant planets moving. Most of those things get lost, but some of them get trapped in these stable regions. So a bunch of them got trapped in the Kuiper belt, but some of them were scattered inward and got trapped in the Trojans. So if you wanna know what this material of, this disk of material was like, and you don't wanna travel all the way out past Neptune to the Kuiper belt, you can go right only to 5 AU where Jupiter is, um, or that distance from the sun. And we think that we will find this very primitive material from the outer solar system there. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's an interesting place for multiple reasons, but let, let's talk a little bit about the spacecraft itself. Um, tell me a bit about Lucy. How big is the spacecraft? Uh, what kind of instruments are on it? And, and how will it actually collect the data and then send it back to you? The biggest thing about Lucy are the solar panels. Uh, when uh, you open up the solar panels, uh, it looks like, uh, you know, sort of a, a mouse with gigantic ears that's the size of a big tractor trailer. Uh, so the uh, solar panels have to be big because we will be the farthest uh, space probe operating on solar power uh, so far. So we're going to be further than any other previous mission running on solar power. So they had to be big. Uh, but the other thing is, if you want to go far, uh, Lucy is by weight half fuel. So uh, you have to make it as lightweight as you possibly can to move it around uh, as you're flying to the asteroids that you want to go to. And so those are the two main design features, really big solar panels. Everything has to be as lightweight as possible. We carry three science instruments. We have a high resolution camera that's called LORI. We have uh, a, a spectroscopic instrument called LRALF. That's actually two instruments in one, but they have the same goal of using the uh, spectroscopic information we can get. So that's the way light uh, interacts with materials as a function of its wavelength to tell us about composition. And then the third instrument is a, is a far infrared instrument that's measuring heat radiation coming from these things, a little bit like a touchless digital thermometer. It's going to tell us the temperature of the targets. And in particular, we're going to be looking at the temperature on the night side and on the day side. And the difference in temperature between night and day tells you a lot about what the surface material uh, is like structurally. So if it's very dusty material that can heat up and cool off very quickly. If it's more of a solid rock, then that takes longer to heat up and, and longer to cool down. So that's uh, a bit of information we can't get another way. Uh, in addition to our three main science instruments, we have two spacecraft systems that we use. So we have to have a different wider angle camera to guide us while we're flying past and make sure that we stay pointed at our asteroids. That's called the terminal tracking cameras, but they will be recording images and especially near closest approach, 
those will give us uh, some great wide angle views of our of our targets. And the last uh, piece of spacecraft that we're going to use is the uh, radio antenna that we use to communicate information back and forth to Earth. As we monitor the frequency of that, we can see small frequency shifts from the Doppler effect as it is affected by the gravity of the asteroids as we fly by. And that allows us to weigh the objects to get their mass. So this is the first time you're getting an up-close view of, of, of these things. I mean, what do we know so far about um, these asteroids that are, that are in this area? I'm, I'm, you know, from, from ground observations, what have, we, what have we discovered about them? Right. Well, so, you know, obviously we've, we've learned about them as much as we can from ground-based telescopes. Uh, the, the first Trojans were discovered in the early 1900s. We now know... Uh, many tens of thousands of them, uh, and uh, as telescopes get bigger and can see more and more faint objects, there's probably a million Trojans that are larger than a kilometer in diameter. So we haven't even found all of the things of that size yet. Uh, the other thing that you like to measure from the ground is just uh, the colors or the spectrum of the objects. And that's one of the things that sort of hints at some of what I was talking about before. If these objects all formed in this area of the solar system from the same material, you would expect them all to look the same, essentially, and they don't. Uh, some of them are more gray in color, and some of them are a little bit redder. And those are terms that you shouldn't take too literally, because if you were to look at them, they would all look really black, like uh, the darkest parking lot you've ever looked at. But but our instruments are able to tell the differences. And so the ones that we call red reflect just a little bit more of the red light than of the bluer light. And so that's a mystery, right? Why should these have uh, different surface compositions and yet they're in the same place? A natural explanation is this idea that they came from further out in the solar system and maybe from different regions in the outer solar system, but that's really an hypothesis that we have to test. So we have to look for other things that will uh, uh, corroborate that that kind of an idea. Mm -hmm. Keith, you, you say that you've discovered from ground-based telescopes tens of thousands of these asteroids. There could be millions of them. Um, that sounds like it might pose a threat to Lucy trying to navigate through all these. Are, are they densely packed asteroids or are they quite far apart? Well, yeah, so I'm glad you asked that. Space is mostly space. And even in uh, the asteroid belt, we've flown many spacecraft through there. Uh, you actually have to try very hard to get close to anything. So uh, they are in the, we call these clumps, but they're really spread out over a, a really great distance. And not only are they, you know, in the top down view, but they're also, uh, they go above and below the average plane of the solar system. So it, it really is a long distance from one to the next. The closest pair that we're going to visit is our, between our first object and the second one, which we encounter only 34 days later. And that's traveling at uh, between you know three and five miles per second relative to uh, the speed of the Trojans. Actually, they're they're moving past Lucy and not the other way around. But uh, 
that gives you an idea of the distances involved. I can't do that kind of math in my head, but it's far. <laughs> so it's not like Star Star Wars or anything where they're navigating through this, no. you know, asteroid field or anything. Okay. Star Wars has done us a great disservice by showing that all the time. It's, yeah, that's... You, you, you mentioned that Lucy's got uh, the planned first and second pass. Are... are all of the asteroids already picked out or yeah. will Lucy be able to, to kind of figure out where it needs to go? No, we had to do that way in advance. In fact, that's really the very first piece of mission design uh, is to figure out if you can get there at all. And then if you can put together a set of asteroids that you not only can you get to, but that are interesting. Uh, there's probably more that we could get to, but they're either too small or not interesting for some other reason. So what we try to do with the Lucy targets is uh, collect a set of targets that test as many of the different variables as we can. So we've got uh, one, our first object, Eurybides, we know was involved in a giant collision because we can see the debris uh, in of pieces that broke off. Uh, the last target we go to is called Patroclus Menetius. It's a binary object that's two objects of about the same size that orbit one another. And because they're about the same size, they're actually orbiting a point in space that lies between the two of them. And we see a lot of those in, out in the Kuiper Belt, and especially in the least disturbed part of the Kuiper Belt. But we also know that these binaries are relatively easy to break apart. So we think that Patroclus and Menetius are one of the lucky survivors that has avoided having any like really major collisions that would have been big enough to break it apart. So we've got that you know, range from something we know is in a collision to something that we don't think has been in any big collisions. We're also getting some very red ones and some not very red ones. We have one of the slowest rotating asteroids in our target list, and along with some that are rotating relatively quickly. So we'll be able to test and see which of those things make a difference and which maybe are not as important in how these asteroids evolve over time. And how many targets overall? We have uh, eight targets overall. One of them is a main belt asteroid that we're going to pass on the way out in 2025. That's, we named that Donald Johansson for the discoverer of the Lucy fossil. And that's a dress rehearsal for us. We will test out all of the things that we need to do when we get to the Trojans. Uh, it's an interesting object on its own, but it's not an official part of the mission. Then when we get out to the Trojans, there are actually seven different objects that we encounter. Uh, that's five different encounters. One of them is this binary that I talked about, Patroclus and Menetius. So you get two objects for one. And the other one, Euripides, that I mentioned was in this big collision. We found in 2018 that it has a small satellite. And we found that by using Hubble. We used Hubble to take extremely deep images of all of our targets just so that we could see if there were any satellites. And we found this one. Uh, it, it, yeah, it, it was a bit of luck because even though Hubble is great, uh, it can only get in so close to our targets. And there's definitely uh, a big range 
where uh, other asteroids are known to have satellites, and most of them are closer than we would be able to see with Hubble. So there's still the potential for Hubble to find things that we were not able to find with Hubble. Wait, did I say Hubble twice? I meant Lucy. <laughs> anyway, you know what I mean, I hope. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, so let, let's talk about, you know, maybe we do need to take a step back. And Lucy launches um, yeah. on the 16th. Um, yes. What's what's the kind of directions? It, I mean, is, is this a straight shot to these Trojan asteroids? How is Lucy going to get there? It's not a straight shot. So, uh, you know, fuel is everything. So we actually loop around uh, uh, after we launch and we come back and have a very close Earth flyby just about a year later, uh, an Earth gravity assist. The next loop is about twice as long. So we come back two years after that and have another close flyby with Earth and another Earth gravity assist. And then after that, we have the, our first loop that makes it out to the Trojans. And and when will it get there? I'm sorry. We we uh, launch in 2021. We fly by the main belt asteroid in April 2025, and we get to Euripides in August of 2027. So it's a little less than six years. Lucy, to me, is, is rather interesting because the name is not an acronym, yeah. <laughs> which, which breaks the mold for a lot of, uh, a lot of spacecraft. Um, How did you come up with the name? Can you explain the significance behind Lucy? It's a very uh, aspirational name. So uh, Lucy is named after the Lucy fossil. And the Lucy fossil is a hominin fossil found in 1974 in the Afar region of Ethiopia. Uh, sort of a Badlands, by Donald Johansson and his crew that were looking for uh, these sort of missing links in the evolution of human ancestors. And it's got a mixture of, you know, human and and uh, non-human uh, qualities to it. And so it really advanced the field at the time. We We like to use the analogy that these Trojans that have been trapped in these stable regions for 4 billion years uh, could also be a kind of fossil that would tell us about this very early chaotic stage of planet formation. So that's the sort of logical connection. And, you know, uh, it's always dangerous uh, going especially to a group of asteroids that are all named after characters from Greek mythology to uh, make the mistake of hubris. And so I don't think we, you know, want to claim that we're definitely going to do that. But that, you know, we would really love to even have a fraction of the impact that the Lucy fossil discovery did with our mission. That was Keith Knoll, a mission scientist on NASA's Lucy mission, launching from Cape Canaveral Space Force Station this weekend. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. You can get it on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? You can also stay up to date on the latest space news. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. The show is at A-W-T-Y Space. Or visit our website at WMFE.org slash space. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. The show's intern is Maria Brasino. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.